In the 2014 timeframe, uh, the Department of Defense started to talk about, hey, we could lose our military technical superiority to the People's Republic of China. And that would be a bad thing. The United States military has relied on military technical superiority since and before World War II. And it's not something, you know, you can't take for granted. You're, you can't always be on the top. This is AI for Leaders by AI Leaders. Practical, to-the-point content, helping you drive results with AI. Here's Chris and Frank. Hi, welcome to the AI Leadership Podcast. I'm Frank Strickland. I'm Chris Whitlock. We have a really special guest today, uh, the former Deputy Secretary of Defense and uh, Vice Chairman of the National Security Commission on AI, uh, Bob Work, is with us. Uh, Bob, welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's great to be here, Frank. So, Bob, let's just start a bit with your background. You've been out of government for a few years. Uh, you started as a United States Marine. Tell us a little bit about your Marine Corps career. Well, I was a Marine artilleryman, uh, and I was on active duty for 27 years. Uh, my last job in the Marine Corps was as the senior aide and uh, military assistant to the Secretary of the Navy, uh, who was Richard Danzig at the time. Uh, and I became a departmentalist at that point. Up until that point, I was a MAGTAF officer, a Marine Air Ground Task Force officer with an artillery specialty, fire support. Uh, but working at the Department of the Navy, uh, it just became much clearer to me that the Navy and the Marine Corps working together was a much more powerful force than either of them uh, alone. I departed the service in 2001, went into think tank land, until 2009 when I became the Undersecretary of the Navy in the first Obama administration. I was in that job for four years. I got out, became the CEO of the Center for a New American Security, a national security think tank here in Washington, D.C. And then I was asked to come back to be the Deputy Secretary of Defense. And I was in that job from 2014 until July of 2018 and I was lucky enough to serve under three extraordinary gentlemen, Chuck Hagel, then Ash Carter, and then James Mattis. So I was able to be the deputy for three different uh, secretaries of defense. After I got out, I was lucky enough to be appointed by Senator Jack Reed to the uh, National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence. Uh, and I was elected by the commissioners to be the co-chairman the chairman was Eric Schmidt, former CEO of Google, uh, and uh, now the head of Schmidt Futures, and he's very, very active in the innovation space. So, Bob, we're going to unpack the NSCI, the National Security Commission on AI. We're going to unpack that a bit more, but Chris and I noticed that that you skipped over something that we think is very critical in your background um, you had an offer from a, an analytics and AI startup um, prior to um, the Obama administration tapping you uh, to be Undersecretary of the Navy. Um, what was the name of that company? Was it, was it Edge Consulting that had given you an offer? Yes, it was. 
<laughs> Actually, Frank, I am curious about one thing as I was listening to Bob, and you know, you and I have talked about this a lot. But Bob, as you gravitated into the NSCAI at coming off of your service focused on AI, it reminds me of where we met working space-related intelligence issues in the early 1990s. And uh, I can remember early interactions with you, but trying to get the military services to understand well how space could contribute and then doing things actively to rig forces to receive that information and use it. Do you see parallels between that whole period and what was going on with space somewhat and and what we're confronted with now in AI? Yes, absolutely. Back then, most of the national technical means, which was the code word for these exquisite space systems that provided exquisite intelligence, uh, was all kind of hidden in a program called the Tactical Exploitation of National Capabilities, or TINCAP. And very few people in the force had the clearances to even receive the data from the space. So the knowledge of what these systems can do was very, very, it was like one inch deep. And uh, it's very much like it is today where people don't really understand AI and all what it uh, can do and what its capabilities are. And just like uh, back then, we started once the National Reconnaissance Office was declassified and we were able to talk openly about these things and send more and more people to schools and get more and more people cleared, very, very quickly, uh, you know, space became central uh, to Department of Defense thinking. And so it's very much like it is today. Uh, what we have to do is open the aperture of artificial intelligence for the entire force from the most senior leaders in the force to the most junior leaders in the force. Uh, just like today in AI, back then, you would have a young, sharp sailor who understood what the system could do, and he would come up with an idea and say, well, if it can do this, what if we used it in this way to do something different, mm. to give us new capabilities? And the same thing's going to happen with AI as more and more people become comfortable with what it can do and what it could do. And that was an evolution that took a lot of time, Frank. Uh, yeah, and Bob, as I reflect on that, I mean, one, one relevant aspect to me, Bob, that I recollect is you really, I, I would think of as a person who acquainted me with Elliot Cohen. And Elliot had been director of the Gulf War Air Power Survey. And one aspect of that effort that he came upon was the big gap between expectations, what military uh, officers especially had expected from space-based systems, and what they actually got or perceived that they got in Desert Storm. And so there was a big effort that, that came after that to kind of close that gap. Let's Let's make sure people have a realistic understanding of the art of the possible, but still leave the window open for innovation. Yeah, um, it, It's striking to me some of the potential parallels to what we grapple with now on AI. No, I think it's very insightful. 
Yeah, and Chris, we've not talked about this. You and I haven't talked about it in the past couple of years, but we were very heavily involved in education and training at that time. Um, I can recall vividly taking uh, operations like the work you did uh, with the Scott O'Grady shoot down and doing analysis of why he got lit up by SA-6s and you know why we didn't have warning and what we could do to make the the warning uh, and the combat search and rescue better. And that led to changes in collection strategies from overhead systems. It led to changes in how radios were being used. And, and a lot of that, there was analysis underpinning it, but we had a very robust education and training effort that um, yeah, put you and I in the field uh, talking to operators and commanders a lot. Yes, yeah, if you remember, rich... oh, yeah, go if ahead, you remember we reorganized the operational support office to have a training and exercise support section where we had a little group for every single combatant commander. And we would go out on exercises and say, well, this is how you might consider, you know, employing space capabilities in your operational planning, et cetera. So you're right. It's going to require the same thing, kind of education from top to bottom. It's, it's interesting to me, and maybe we can circle back around to this, Frank, just had not thought about it until we get in this conversation with Bob, but your point, there was an active education effort, raise awareness, raise understanding, and improve expectations or make them more realistic. There was a training element that was associated with new system softwares and prototyping that was going on. You know, what you mentioned, uh, say, using the example of the O'Grady shoot-down, that led to tactics, techniques, and procedure changes. And then there were developmental efforts, right? You could almost look at all four of those things, education, training, TTP changes, and new system development I don't know why we wouldn't expect that for AI. For AI, it, yeah, it, yeah it's absolutely. The full spectrum of those things are going to confront the force yeah. or continue to front the confront the joint force. So let's circle back to that in just a second, um, Bob. Let's spend just a minute on the NSCAI report. Chris and I have been a little bit, frankly, stunned <laughs> on occasion. We've we've interacted with some people on the Hill uh, who have said NSCAI <clears throat> report. Um, there's a lot going on in the country. It's a big, complex enterprise, big, complex government. But People are busy. Yeah. In, in a nutshell, you know, what was the commission? Why was it created? What did it do? Well, <clears throat> in the 2014 timeframe, uh, the Department of Defense started to talk about, hey, we could lose our military technical superiority to the People's Republic of China. And that would be a bad thing. The United States military has relied on military technical superiority since and before World War II. And it's not something, you know, you can't take for granted. You you can't always be on the top. I mean, all you got to do is think about Kodak. You know, they were the king. They were the emperor of film photography. And... They invent digital photography, but the leadership just could not convince themselves they needed to change their operating model. So they didn't. And they lost out in, you know, they lost. Digital photography became king, 
and pretty soon Kodak declared bankruptcy. So the Department of Defense started thinking, we don't want to be the next Kodak. We have got to do something different to be more innovative, to get new capabilities into the forces as quickly as we can, to have new tactics, training, and procedures, uh, to understand the way China and Russia think about us as an adversary and what they think they're going to try to do to us, and to have the TTPs to make sure that they won't be able to do to us what they want to do. Um, so we started thinking, how do we do this? And we called on the Defense Science Board, which are a bunch of graybeards, people who have literally decades of experience in national security and are all you know, accomplished engineers, accomplished scientists, accomplished uh, theoretical um, leaders. And we went to them and said, okay, we want to be number one in military technical superiority. What do we have to do? And they came back and said, <clears throat> you must do one thing above all others, and that is dominate autonomy. And they said the best way to get to autonomy is through artificial intelligence. <clears throat> so a lot of people ask me, hey, the third offset was all about AI. No, the third offset was all about autonomy, and AI was the means to get you there. So from 2014 through 2017 as the deputy, <clears throat> I led a lot of efforts, and I was trying to get the Department of Defense to be a leader in the AI technology space so we could convert that into being the leader in autonomy. And um, autonomy, Bob, <clears throat> there to clarify because some listeners may hear that and think, you know, as an example, full self-driving car but that's not the only manifestation of autonomy that you've been focused on when we think about the offset, correct? Yeah, that's correct. We thought about autonomy in two different ways, Chris. The first we called human-machine collaboration. Using machines and AI-enabled autonomy to allow humans to make better decisions faster. And we call that human-machine collaboration. And then there was human-machine combat teaming, which was using crude platforms like a fighter plane and having them operate with uncrewed platforms like drones uh, to accomplish missions they couldn't accomplish before. So we thought of it in terms of that way. A lot of people gravitate towards the autonomy in motion, which is the robotics and the uh, autonomy uh, in systems, but the human-machine collaboration is actually the place where we might get the biggest bang for the buck. Humans having better decisions because they're working with machines side by side, letting the machine do the statistical calculations, create courses of action, make recommendations to the leader, have the leader choose among them, uh, and we see all sorts of evidence that that is really a powerful, powerful team. And so, Bob, you used the word offset, and we'll, on a separate occasion, uh, just a quick heads up for our listeners, we're actually going to be recording some lessons where Bob is going to walk through a series of lessons on defense innovation and military technical superiority, so stay tuned for those. Um, but we won't go 
for this purpose into all the details of the offset, but just in essence, what is an offset and why was there a third? What happened to the first and second? Well, the first and second offsets were both designed to overcome the quantitative superiority of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact. So in the inner German border, for example, we knew that the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact would enjoy, at a minimum, a three-to-one numerical advantage in conventional forces. Well, there was no way we were going to try to match them tank for tank, attack helicopter for attack helicopter, soldier for soldier, artillery piece for artillery piece. So we had to ask ourselves, how do we offset their numerical advantage using technology? And so an offset strategy is simply, okay, you've got this problem. How are we going to use technology to offset their advantage? And the first and second offsets have now run their course. The Soviet Union has gone away, and we're up against a competitor like China, who's an entirely different kettle of fish than the Soviet Union. Um, They are going to be the most formidable competitor the United States has ever faced. And so we started saying... How were we going to offset their growing uh, skill in high-technology warfare? So this was a different type of offset. The third offset was not to overcome a numerical advantage so much as it was to overcome uh, a competitor that could run right with us, excuse me, uh, with technological advantage and innovation, excuse me. So, Bob, um, necking into elements of the NSCIR report, and again, we'll do a separate uh, session on the details of the report sometime, but let's just focus on talent for a moment, and it'll kind of bring us back to the training discussion. You all highlighted just a few key areas, and then you pushed a number of recommendations uh, successfully across the goal line and things like the CHIPS Act and DOD R&D funding and whatnot. So it was a consequential, a very consequential commission report that you all did. But talk a little bit about why you got on the talent and and how you think about uh, the talent deficit. Yeah, we looked at, uh, we thought of the competition. First of all, even though we were called the National Security Commission on Artificial Intelligence, all of the commissioners quickly came to the conclusion, look, this is about a technological competition at the broadest national level and that you had to win that competition. And the central pillar of the competition was artificial intelligence, primarily because, and I would recommend you all read this, there's an article in uh, the most recent uh, edition of Foreign Affairs by Eric Schmidt who was the chair of the National Security Commission on AI, called Innovation Power. And he makes the case why AI is the central pillar of a technological competition, and you've got to win it. Um, All of the commissioners, whether they came from Google or they were a a professor of computer science from Carnegie Mellon, uh, everyone agreed, yep, this is right. And after we looked at all of the different things that would impact the competition, we unanimously said the side that gets the talent right 
is going to be the side that wins the competition. And that is because AI is a stack of things. So you need data. Uh, you need algorithms which run the data and make predictions. Those algorithms are used in applications to solve problems. Then you need hardware to run the algorithms with these advanced chips, you know, uh, three nanometers. Uh, you've got to have chips that go faster and faster and faster and can, you know, crunch the data faster and faster and faster. And uh, then you have integration. Uh, so we were looking at the competition and we said, okay, right now uh, we think China has the advantage in data because they don't have, they don't care about PII, for example. So we have HIPAA, which restricts the way that we could use health data. The Chinese don't have HIPAA. Right now they could start algorithms that say, let's use algorithms to predict bad health outcomes. And they could do that, and they would have a huge advantage in data because they could get their hands on it quickly. They are very good at taking AI algorithms and converting them into applications like TikTok and all sorts of other different things. So we said they have an advantage in applications. And because they're centrally uh, led and have a national a firm national plan to become the number one AI power in the world, they had an advantage in integration. Where the United States had an advantage, we thought, we assessed, uh, we have an advantage in algorithms. We thought that the United States, as a general matter, makes better algorithms than the Chinese. And we definitely have an advantage in hardware. Essentially, the West has cornered the market on the fabrication machines for advanced chips. And this is a big advantage for us. We're at least a generation ahead, if not two, of uh, Chinese chip making. Uh, and then on the talent side, uh, we said we have to win the talent side, so we need to change our immigration status. So all the PhDs in the world who want to come to the United States, let's get them to the United States and use them. And that's when we came to the conclusion that the side that has the best talent is going to win the competition. Whoever has the best algorithms, that's interesting, but you're not going to have the best algorithms unless you have the best talent. You're not going to have the best applications unless you have the best talent. You're not going to have the best data unless you have the best talent. So we went into all sorts, and we looked across the government, and said, well, this kind of sucks because the government doesn't have the talent in AI needed from the very top of the government to the most junior person in the government. We need to increase the AI literacy of the entire federal government and especially the Department of Defense. So we started to think, okay, how could we do that? And we started thinking about a new uh, national digital core where we would send young men and women to get a full ride in a U.S. university in a STEM uh, uh, curriculum. And then they would come into the government for maybe four or five years, and they would help us increase the entire literacy uh, of the government and the Department of Defense. 
We also said, man, we have a lot of homegrown talent. There's a lot of young kids in the military, for example, that were gamers. They're great coders, and uh, they're just ready to go. All we have to do is explain, okay, here's the rules of the game, uh, and they're going to come up with ideas that uh, just completely and continually surprise you. And we see that all the time, every day. So talent from top to bottom. You just can't have leaders at the top talking about AI. You've got to have a workforce that understands what the leaders are saying and what the, uh, the leaders expect from them. So talking about AI leaders, I, it's a very broad term for me. AI leaders are everybody, includes everybody in an organization. AI literacy uh, is what is needed for us to go at scale and win this competition. It's so interesting, you, Bob and Frank, I, I wonder about this just coming directly on the heels of this. I, I think as a lay leader, it would be easy to look at some of the really big successes. Uh, you know, we've got a lot of attention on generative AI as an example, and that's got a recent legacy. But one of the one of the innovators there, Andrew Ning, wrote in the fall. Uh, he had moved from being instrumental in, in a big, large language model to thinking, we can bring this to manufacturing. We can bring AI to manufacturing. And what he found and what he shared was, ah, this is a lot of small problems. We've been working on these huge foundational things, somewhat like chat GPT, if you were looking for a current analog in the press. But he said, what we're finding in manufacturing is we have just a multitude of smaller problems that require very differentiated attention. That to me kind of signals for national security we should expect a similar thing. This is not one or two big, large programs, you know, dusted and done or done and dusted. This is a lot of activity across many domains where work is performed. That's where I would tend to go in hypothesis, thinking about the future. How do you react to that? I, I couldn't agree more. Um, in the military, in the Department of Defense, it's all sorts of practical problems. I mean, problems that are faced by our young men and women every day. And uh, people just don't think of this and say, God, this is a thing for AI to solve. And I'll give an example that we were talking about in the studio just before we started this conversation. You know, I was talking to the Commandant of the Marine Corps, the number one uh, Marine. And, uh, you know, AI is a topic of conversation among all the leaders uh, in the Department of Defense. And I said, uh, General Berger, you know, if you had to use AI today to solve one problem, what would you use it for? And he said, let me tell you, every day I get a report of another vehicle rollover and young Marines die. And it just drives me crazy. I have to think that AI would be able to help the driver avoid the terrain that increases the likelihood of a rollover. Mm. And I was just, I was saying, you know, that's exactly the way we have to look at AI. It has to solve practical problems. We don't need to say, hey, let's use AI uh, to come up with the greatest campaign plan uh, 
uh, in the history of warfare. Hopefully we'll get there someday. But right now, you know, we're losing young men and women uh, in rollovers, and AI can say, driver, do not turn down this road. You know, the inclination is too, uh, too high for this vehicle to handle. Um, there are all sorts of problems. And so to Chris, to your point, we have to have every single person enlisted in the AI competition because all of them know the practical problems that they're faced with every day and say, you know what? I hate this. I need some help. You know, this is this happened at the, uh, the United States Transportation Command, you know, where aerial tankers, we only have a finite number of them, a little less than 500. And they go out every day and they refuel fighter planes and bombers all over the world. And you have to be able to say, okay, tanker, you're going to go to this place and you're going to refuel, you know, these many aircraft. They literally were making the plans on a whiteboard and in Excel spreadsheets. Uh, and so there was somebody who came in from a unit called the Defense Innovation uh, Unit, and they came in and were watching them do all this marking up on whiteboards, and they said, what in the hell are you doing? They said, well, we're planning for global tanker operations. And the guy said, you've got to be kidding me. So like in two days, they wrote an algorithm, and now it's all done by AI. And the commanders can look at the output from the AI, which are recommendations to the commanders. Uh, they aren't decisions. The AI don't make the decisions. The humans make the decisions. But the AI says, hey, human, this is what we'd recommend. Uh, and man, just think of all of the problems that you and I faced when we were in the National Reconnaissance Office and we were saying, how do we get this data to this place? Uh, AI could help us in a heartbeat and say, this is how you would do it. So fundamentally, if we think about the national security enterprise, and I tend to define it as the departments of defense, state, homeland security, a good bit of justice. Energy. Energy. Um, some of commerce, uh, the intelligence community. So you take this massive enterprise, which is well over 50% of all discretionary spending in the federal government when you aggregate all of that. Defense alone is over 50%. You have millions of people. You have literally, I suspect, hundreds of thousands of integration points task, what in the tech business we would call a use case, optimize the scheduling of tankers in the Pacific, you know, et cetera. Uh, stop the vehicle rollover problem. Um, it, you have probably hundreds of thousands of those potential integration points. And so fundamentally, Bob, what we have been talking about is the decisions on where to start and where might have the biggest return on mission for the investment. Those are all leader decisions, and you can't make those decisions unless you've got tens of thousands of competent leaders kind of driving the show. Exactly. You know, I'd, I'd say the middle management, <clears throat> you, you want to have a lot of young men and women who are saying, this is a problem that's kicking my ass, and, you know, I could really use some help. And you want them to be understanding enough about AI to ask the question, 
to the right AI person. Here's my problem. How can you help me solve this? And then the middle management leaders, uh, the program managers, the uh, they're going to say, look, out of the 15 different ideas that I have heard, I'm prioritizing them in this way. And we're going to go right down this list, but we're going to handle this this one first. Uh, and then that goes all the way up to the most senior leaders in the department where maybe the chief digital and AI officer makes the recommendation. Look, the highest payoff we could have right now is if we had a predictive indications and warning system for every single one of our combatant commanders where AIs would <clears throat> AI algorithms would say, based on all the data that we see, classified, unclassified, all of the open source information, we predict that the enemy is going to mount an attack within seven days. <clears throat> that is gold to a commander. You know, indications and warning, the worst thing to be is surprise. So, you know, working on an algorithm like that, I already know it can be done because I am aware of algorithms that are helping combatant commanders today. Uh, so, but the combatant commander needs to know what to ask for. So it's just not, you've got to have AI leaders in the broadest sense of the word from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. So um, you have talked about a training example. Um, one of the things that's great about your just deep background in national security is in addition to being an operator, you have read a lot, you have thought a lot, you've studied a lot, you've disciplined yourself to writing a lot. Um, and consequently, you can draw some really powerful historical examples. Um, for those who might think, eh, training can't really move the needle on a big enterprise, you've held up at times the carrier aviation in post-World War One. Um, what was that about? How did it have an effect? So, you know, post-World War I, the United States Navy was built around battleships. The entire fleet trained for big fleet actions, decisive actions between the battle lines of opposing forces. Um, and then all of a sudden, the airplane comes along. Now, this new technology was new to everyone, and everyone know, okay, I get it. You fly, and you go up, and you can scout further, farther, and you can, you know, possibly use the avi uh, aviation for offensive operations. But you had a whole bunch of different ideas on uh, how you would use aviation. Uh, some people would say, Hey, we're going to tie aviation to the battle line. Protect the battleship. Yeah, we're going to protect <laughs> the battleship. First of all, you're going to scout and warn the battleship that the bad guy battleships are headed their way. And if they have airplanes that are going to try to come and bomb the battleships, you're going to have airplanes to shoot down the bombers. So it was really a battle line-centric way. And then you had another group of visionaries who said, you know what? Aviation is going to supplant the battle line. You know, you ponderous battleships can shoot 32,000 yards. 
airplanes can fly and drop bombs over hundreds of miles. So sooner or later, battleships, you guys are going to start eating a lot of bombs. Um, and But people didn't know. So what the Navy said is, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take battleship admirals and we're going to send them, not just admirals, colonels, you know, commanders. <coughs> we're going to send them to Pensacola and we're going to give them their wings. We're going to teach them how to fly. And then they're going to come back to the fleet and they're going to be the ones who say, this is how we're going to use aviation. And it was a stupendous success. I mean, you would have battleship admirals who would, you know, go down to uh, Pensacola, learn how to fly, understand just what an airplane might be able to do as you get more powerful engines, greater range, greater payload, you name it. And, you know, so the U.S. Navy loses its battle line on the first day of the war. They no longer have a battle line. But six months later, they win the greatest victory in U.S. naval history uh, using carriers and aviation. And the same thing could happen with AI. We start sending leaders to different levels of education. Some we might want to send to get PhDs. Uh, some we might want to send to get uh, Masters of Arts and Science. But you need a practical education system to teach as many people as you possibly can the practical aspects of AI and how it would help them make their lives better and their operations better. So you have to have all different types of education. Um, as we were talking about, it's the practical problems that kick the butts of you know our sailor, sailor sailors, <laughs> of our Marines, sailors, Soldiers and airmen and spacemen, I guess vanguard guardians 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 guardians. So uh, they know what the practical problems is. We have to give them a practical AI course to say, oh, think about it this way, and uh, we'll be able to do the same thing that we did in the U.S. Navy in the interwar period. Mm. So for our listeners, to that end, um, something that Chris and I have done recently is create a course entitled AI for Everyone, uh, and it's pretty denotatively <laughs> titled. Um, it is intended to give everyone in the national security enterprise that basic level of fluency so they can talk about AI in a mission-focused way and they can interact with AI experts on opportunities um, with sufficient fluency in the core AI discipline, which is data science. Yeah, the big thing, uh, <clears throat> I'm a big fan of your <clears throat> courses. And the thing is, is to make AI less of a mystery and to lower the fear in young men and women that, hey, I don't have to be a computer scientist uh, to really get something out of AI. In fact, uh, Andrew Moore, who was a professor of computer science at Carnegie Mellon and then went out to Google uh, and is now, he just got hired. I think he's going to be the first AI guy in CENTCOM. Uh, I may be wrong about that. But he said, you know what? 
all we need to do is to teach our young men and women uh, computational thinking. If they understand computational thinking, they don't need to be a computer scientist. They just have to understand how a machine thinks. And I use the thinks with air quotes. Uh, so this practical application is so important. And I would say over the time, because what you're looking for is scale and you're trying to solve multitudes of practical problems, it's more consequential than the PhDs and the MSs and, <clears throat> you know, the computer scientists. You need all of them. But the way we win the long-term competition with China is if our force is more computer literate and more AI literate than our potential adversaries. <laughs> and Bob, just one last note there. Um, you know, in our system of government and in our Department of Defense, we organize, train, and equip to fight and win if we have to. But, but you believe that making great strides in this technological competition can be a meaningful deterrent to war as well. Yes. I mean, the organization that oversaw all of the innovation that was going on <clears throat> in the department was called the Advanced Capabilities and Deterrent Panel. Deterrence Panel, the ACDP. For exactly the reason you were talking about. If <clears throat> we can demonstrate to any adversary that we have a decided military technical advantage, we believe that that will underwrite our conventional deterrent and therefore make war less likely. Hmm. Well, Bob, um, thank you so much for taking this time with us. Uh, thank you for your service to the country. Um, you're a very humble uh, leader, but what you have done uh, in uniform uh, in two major think tanks focused on national security, and then as the Undersecretary of the Navy Department, and then um, the um, the entire Department of Defense. It, it's it's just you are one of the more remarkable uh, people in national security that Chris and I have had the pleasure uh, to meet and work with. So here, thank here. you so much for taking this time with us. Well, it's a pleasure. I think that was probably a little overblown. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much appreciate you Bob take care Chris Chris and I thank you for listening we hope this content is useful to you to help get the word out across the national security enterprise and indeed the government uh, if you're consuming on YouTube please subscribe to the channel and like this episode if you're listening on Apple or Spotify please give a rating and reviewing just takes a few seconds to do this really helps get the word out we have produced a new piece of content. It is an 83-minute lesson entitled What Every Leader Needs to Know About Chat GPT and Large Language Models. You can find that and other great content on our website, AILeaders.com. That's AILeaders.com. So until the next episode of the AI Leadership Podcast, Chris and I thank you for listening.